is at 78%. You've been listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Janice Wong and your guest presenter is Rainbow Leung. Good morning, Rainbow. Hello, good morning. On today's programme, we're talking about proposals to tighten up monitoring of psychiatric patients with violent tendencies in the wake of the horrific double murder at a Diamond Hill Mall earlier this month. For now, patients who were admitted to hospital involuntarily and are diagnosed to have violent tendencies must comply with certain conditions, even after they're discharged, such as requirements on taking their medication and attending follow-up consultations. But these conditions cannot currently be imposed on patients who were admitted on a voluntary basis, who make up the majority of psychiatric patients. Lawmakers say it's time to change this, and the government should consider imposing legal requirements on voluntarily admitted patients as well. So will such requirements help psychiatric patients? Can it make the city safer? After 9.45, we'll look at new treatments developed by the Polytechnic University to treat infections caused by antibiotic-resistant superbugs. So let us know what you think on our Facebook page, a Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233 now to kick off our discussion this morning, we have on the line roundtable lawmaker Michael Tien and Daisy Chung, the Deputy Director of the Center for Medical Ethics and Law at the University of Hong Kong. We will also be joined in a moment by clinical psychologist Amos Chung. Good morning, Mr. Tien. Good morning. Good morning, Ms. Chung. Good morning. Thanks, Thanks. Thanks for joining us on the program. Um, so, Mr. Chen, you're one of the lawmakers who expressed concern at a LegCo meeting on Monday about the uh, current system for monitoring psychiatric patients with violent tendencies. Can you tell us what you're worried about? Well, what I worry about is exactly uh, that what happened at Diamond Hill Shopping Center, uh, the mall, will repeat again. Uh, and... Uh, of course, uh, this has been reviewed about 10 years ago in Hong Kong, this piece of legislation. And at that time, it was stored by advocates of human rights and uh, privacy. Uh, but then I started to ask myself, if I'm a relative of the, that two uh, women who died, uh, how would I feel about their uh, human rights? Right? So it's be- precisely because of that that I started digging into it, and I realized that currently the legislation does not provide conditional discharge or when the, the patient is admitted uh, voluntarily, all right? So that is something that I would like to push for, but one can argue that if that is the case, then there'll be a big drop in voluntary uh, admission in the future because nobody uh, wants to uh, declare that they have a problem and go get treatment because once they do that, they get hooked onto the system and the only way they can get back out is a conditional discharge. Well, but it's, that is something that, you know, we will have to live with. Uh, my other concern, the main concern, is what is uh, in, within the conditional discharge. Currently, uh, what they have is a community treatment order which requires them to come back uh, to take medication. Now, the problem with oral medication is that you have to come back very frequently, sometimes twice a day. How many patients do you think, once they leave the uh, 
uh, sort of the government-controlled uh, venues, uh, would continue to believe that they uh, have a need to receive such treatment, and therefore they would come back every day for oral drugs. Uh, when I uh, checked around with the sources inside, they say uh, they tend to drop, the interest tend to drop after a while. All right? So then the other alternative is to have them come in for a mandatory uh, medical injection, injectorated medicine. So what's the difference between that and oral drugs? That you could do once every two, three months. So requiring issuing a conditional discharge and issuing a treatment order for them, requiring them to come back once every two or three months, and if they don't come back, you go after them. It's something that is much more enforceable than requiring to come back uh, once a day or twice a day uh, over a very long period of time. So that is the uh, uh, part that I have been pushing for, and that will apply to people that were admitted voluntarily or involuntarily. Because right now what happens is even for those that were admitted involuntarily, like this particular case, I think, okay, once they discharge, you would have to rely on that person uh, to come back uh, on a very regular basis. And most of them, uh, after a long period, just kind of died off because they don't think they have a problem. And then it just, you know, uh, became so. All right. Let us go to Miss. Okay, justice is what, you know, I've been advocating. All right. Let's go to Miss Chung. Miss Chung? Um, so, so what do you think of uh, Mr. Tian's concerns? I mean, um, from what he, he's saying, do you think there is a big loophole in the system? Uh, first of all, I, I mean, obviously, I'd like to express my condolences to the families of the victims in this case. I mean, obviously, nobody wants to see something like this happen. But um, when thinking about changes that can and should be made to the system, I think we need to think about sort of two things. One, whether, you know, what, what is provided in the current system, and, and secondly, whether these changes are enforceable and whether they can actually make a difference. So first of all, in, in terms of the uh, voluntary admission, um, I should clarify that under the current regime, a conditional discharge can also happen to someone who's been voluntarily admitted, but it's a little bit more complicated. So what needs to happen is that the voluntary patient needs to want to leave. So they have to write a letter to say, I, I request to leave. And then the doctor has about seven days to decide whether or not to compulsorily admit this patient. And then, after compulsorily admitting them, then they can conditionally discharge. So, there are, obviously, then they also need to meet the criteria for admission at the point of them wanting to leave. But um, there is, so therefore, there is a way um, under the voluntary admission system for a person to be conditionally discharged. Now, the question is, if we expand um, this ability to um, uh, uh, conditionally discharge someone to people who don't meet this criteria, who, how helpful would this be? So essentially what we would be doing is we would be capturing a group of people who are already being cooperative, right? So these are the people who are not asking to leave, who are staying in the hospital and who are receiving treatment. And um, it's the doctor who thinks, okay, it's time to discharge them because everything is going well, things are going well, and they're not the ones asking to leave, right? So we already have the compulsory treatment option for those who don't want to be treated, who want to leave. And so essentially what we can argue is that we've already captured the most difficult uh, patients uh, under the current system and expanding it to cover these other patients uh, is not going to be particularly helpful. Plus, as um, uh, Mr. Chan also mentioned, this is likely going to make people uh, less likely to come to voluntary admission, although I would argue that this will be the case 
uh, in any event because of all these high-profile discussions and the continued stigmatization of this group of people um, uh, every day uh, based on these discussions. Um, the second point is about compliance with treatment. So, um, first of all, oral meds, it's true that it's very difficult to monitor whether or not somebody is taking their oral meds. And in fact, having someone come to the hospital uh, two or three times a day is not feasible, not only from the perspective of the, the patient themselves, they need to have jobs, they need to have lives, but also from the, the perspective of the, the hospital, right, or the, the people who are organizing these resources. So where are they going to get these people? Who's going to, so if we ask them to go to certain centers, you know, are we going to put a nurse there who watches them take their medication three times a day? How many, how much resources are we willing to spend on this issue? So as Mr. Chen also said, this is not very feasible. So he suggested that injections be used instead. Now, the problem with this is, First of all, injections are generally, as I understand, I'm not a psychiatric uh, professional, but as I understand, they're only generally used for schizophrenic, um, so, so medi uh, medicine for uh, people with uh, schizophrenia. And also, there aren't a lot of choices of medication for which you can use injections. So some, for some people, these medications, they might not respond to them, and they might not, the doctors might not have a choice to uh, give them injections. So, for example, um, not everyone will need this, but one of the most um, potent forms of medication is clozapine, and it doesn't come in an injection form. So for these uh, people who need this very strong type of medication, the only form is via oral. So that particular, sorry, that particular method um, would, would uh, so, so man, uh, sort of requiring injection for every person who is under CD would not work for that particular purpose. Okay. And finally, um, I just, uh, one last point is okay. there is already a mechanism for under the CD for people who don't take their um, injections, so people who don't come for their injections, to be recalled back to hospital. So it's not uh, under the current law. There is already a provision for people who don't um, go take their injections to then be, uh, if, they're just, uh, if they, it's necessary in their um, health or in the other uh, protection for other people, then you can recall them back to hospital, which means that they're immediately compulsorily admitted to hospital again. All right. So that's already covered, yeah. All right, Mr. Chen, let's go back to you. I mean, after listening to what uh, Ms. Chen is saying, um, do you, do you I mean, do you still stand by your suggestions of uh, using, for example, using injections instead oh, of... Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. My viewpoint is very simple. Uh... I never go for a perfect system because in life there are there is no perfect system. All right, what we should do is to do our best. All right, if there are uh, illnesses that there is injectable medicine to take care of, we go after that. Mm. That would make it uh, a lot more enforceable. Uh, in the lack of that, I actually don't know what is the best way to go forward because you, the doctor, would say, I mean. Uh, if, if medication is required, all right, which uh, from the experts that I talk to those uh, that have undergone sort of treatment under sort of schizophrenia situation that have a violent tendency, uh, my understanding is a lot of them would have these treatment. Now, if they have these treatment but it's not available in an injectable form, then I guess the only way is to have them come in and take the you know, oral medication but, you know, it's not enforceable, and it is a problem. But at least I will cover those uh, where uh, injectable medication uh, is available. Mm. I'm, I'm actually interested in further understanding how a conditional discharge works, because that's the current regime that we have in Hong Kong. Um, so perhaps this is a question more for Daisy. Um, who decides the conditions and, you know, what are the type of conditions typical, that one would typically see? 
in a uh, conditional discharge? Right. So um, under the law, it's one, uh, the responsible, uh, well, well, it's the medical superintendent who then delegates to the responsible physician who decides whether to conditionally discharge and then what conditions to impose. Now, of course, um, in practice, what generally happens is that there is a multidisciplinary ward round or meeting um, at which uh, the doctors uh, involved in that particular team will discuss whether this person should be discharged, whether they're, uh, what, what kinds of conditions, and even if not, even if there's not such a team that does this, then um, the, the junior doctor will generally require the endorsement of a senior doctor to proceed. So um, the types of conditions, the, the ones that are listed in the legislation and are most common include um, attending at uh, the clinic. So they have to go see the doctor at the scheduled appointment. They have to take their medication. Um, they have to reside. Usually they have to reside at a specific address. So this could be at a halfway house or it could be at their specific address. Um, and then they have to be supervised by the director of social welfare. So, so this involves supervision by a social uh, worker, um, community, psychiatric nurse, et cetera. Um, other conditions that have been heard of um, include, for example, not taking drugs. Um, even some of them, um, in, a, in a study that was done by another person, um, the doc, uh, doctors described certain conditions as being weird um, and, and um, things that they hadn't seen before. So I, basically the idea is that they can impose um, a range of different conditions in addition to these conditions that are specific to the patient. And there's not really anything under the legislation that stops them from imposing something that's not particularly related, say, to their violent tendencies or to their uh, illness. It could be, you know, stopping them from seeing someone, etc. So um, there are a range of different conditions that can be imposed. All right. Um, let, let's go back to Mr. Chen again. Mr. Chen. Yes. Yes. So, so apart from uh, your suggestion of uh, using injection uh, instead of oral medication, I know you also uh, want uh, the introduction of uh, community treatment orders. Um, what's your view on that? How do you think that will actually help? <clears throat> well, I think that for those who are admitted uh, voluntarily, uh, you should also come under uh, this uh, uh, <clears throat> this requirement. All right, because at the end of the day. Uh, we are trying our best to uncover and treat uh, cases of people uh, that have uh, that is sort of uh, schizophrenia with a violent tendency. <clears throat> if they never come forward and they never uh, <clears throat> involved in any kind of offenses, then there's nothing we can do. All right, either they were involved in previous offenses, so they were admitted involuntarily or if they realize by their family members or friends that they do have this uh, problem and they come in voluntarily uh, we have to do our best to treat that patient and then when we release them which I totally support that we cannot keep them locked up for life that somehow somewhere sometime we have to release them subject to a list of conditions uh, we then have to think about public safety for these people who have violent tendency. And since um, oral medication, based on frequent uh, return to the clinic, is something that basically, uh, from what I've heard, is that it just kind of died off after a certain period of time. Uh, it's not enforceable. Then we resort to, you know, injectable medicine. And of course, you can never cover the whole universe, all right? But I have reason to believe that that particular case that happened in Diamond Hill uh, belong in that category. I mean, eventually we will find out. But we just have to do our best to cover all bases to ensure 
the maximum level of uh, public safety. All right. Uh, we're also now joined on the line by clinical psychologist Amos Chung. Good morning, Dr. Chung. Good morning. Thanks for joining us on the program. So uh, we've been discussing uh, the need to introduce uh, community treatment orders. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? I guess uh, the mental health-related illnesses actually covered a wide range of mental health-related problems. Uh, not every mental health uh, uh, issues require such uh, measures because most of the time actually uh, medical treatments uh, we believe are, are voluntary in nature. Uh, but of course, there would be circumstances where it requires a more enforceable action, uh, both for the protection of the patient and also of the community. I guess this is a delicate problem. And I think the whole issue actually originates from like 30, 40 years ago, where we started uh, to have a shift from institutional care to community care where we promote the institutionalization. But in fact, what is more important is that when we have to promote community care, do we have, the, in, have enough resources and trained professionals actually to provide this continuous care in the community? Or is it just basically we discharge them from the hospital and then we do not able to have provide quality professional follow-ups in the community because most of the time it's not just medications medications of course will help stabilize the condition but in fact there are a lot of environmental factors that can either improve or deteriorate a person's mental health condition and it requires continuous uh, monitoring and care so that we will be able to identify it. So it's not just a simplified matter of uh, uh, enforceable medications or not, but whether it requires a paradigm shift again or that would require a review and adjustment. All right. So let's go to Mr. Chen. I mean, when you talk about uh, um, your, your suggestion of uh, the, the um, order that you're talking about, the community treatment order, in your view, how will it uh, be um, executed? Because, I mean, we talked about, I mean, just now, uh, Dr. Chen, he's talking about uh, the need for trained professionals. I mean, do we have enough? I am not a medical expert. Uh, I have to rely on the experts. If we can get, I'm, I'm suggesting that we at least get two doctors to sign off, okay, plus whatever else that's needed <clears throat> to ensure that that person is fit to be released back into the community. Now, if that release is conditional upon certain level of support at the community and the follow-up, then I don't know who would be entitled to sign that release. Because how can that be guaranteed? Unless government itself provides that follow-up service, all right, which with the scarce resources that we have today, I just don't know whether that can be guaranteed. So I suppose for any two doctors to sign off somebody to be released back in the community, community the patient has to be at a level where he or she can pretty much uh, carry on with their life under uh, the required kind of medication with uh, a minimum amount of follow-up uh, from any kind of 
medical professional. So that is the key. Under what condition can the two doctors or should the two doctors sign of this release? So they are balancing uh, about uh, this person's human rights uh, to live under a uncontrolled environment, uh, the resources that government have to keep all these people under uh, hospital supervision versus uh, releasing them back in the community so they can have a normal life. Uh, but if that requires a uh, very high level of uh, support medically, how can that be assured? If not, then you cannot release. Uh, and I just want to pick up on that point, um, um, because the conditional discharge regime focuses um, on those patients uh, with violent tendencies. And, and one, one thought I had is, what, what is societal rationale of the system discharging these patients um, into the community? And perhaps that's a question for, I don't know, Daisy or, or, or Amos? Sorry, what's your, your question is why we are um, letting them out? Or That's them... right. That's right. Because um, if a patient has violent tendencies, one would have thought, logis logically speaking, that they could be better cared for within the hospital system where they have, you know, the, the right. you know, the, the full support available right, it, it, right. pretty quickly. But so what's yeah. this societal rationale for for, you know, releasing these patients you know, who have these violent tendencies into, back into the community. Yeah, so first of all, I need to clarify that the criteria is that they have to have a medical history of criminal violence or they have to have a disposition to commit this violence, which means that this is this incredibly wide criteria that covers, um, so this is not a, a criminal history. So as in, you don't actually have had to have any offense. So as long as someone in your, in your medical notes have written that you have done something that could potentially be characterized as violence or that you have a personality that could potentially commit violence, uh, again, this is hugely subjective, um, then you can be caught under this particular um, uh, order. And so, for example, um, people that I've seen go on CD um, are people who may have, in a domestic argument, pushed uh, a family member onto the floor or they may have uh, thrown an umbrella at someone, or they may have uh, thrown a piece of, this is not discharge, uh, conditional discharge, but an evidence of violence that I've seen in medical notes, throw a piece of paper at someone. So um, what I'm saying is this order currently captures uh, an enormously wide range of people and arguably doesn't target the people. So I agree with you that there may be certain people who are in, in a certain particular state uh, of violence or uh, imminent risk of dangerousness that we need to protect, uh, we need to, we need to uh, perhaps put more controls on in the interest of public safety. But um, what we're talking about in this particular example of CD is not addressing that specifically. So in other countries, we see very tight criteria. For example, they have to have been hospitalized a number of times. They have to be unwilling to participate with treatment. There's a number of different criteria that have to be satisfied in order for community treatment orders to be used. And so um, I don't think um, the, 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 the issue here is why we're letting them out. It's, it's why we are putting all of these people who arguably um, are not, uh, you know, in the least likely to cause any kind of, you know, large-scale public violence um, or, or, you know, minor-scale, any scale of public violence um, onto these very, very restrictive orders. And, 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 and again, just picking up from that, um, and especially from the explanation you previously gave about the typical conditions that one would see, yes. there's, there seems to be, in my view, um, benefit to having those conditions 
in that they provide a sort of like a supervisory oversight layer to, to assist a patient to integrate back into society, to, you know, to assist them in ma making recovery. So at the moment, um, you know, th that, that access, you know, the tapping into that network is uh, the people, the, the bucket of people that are eligible are, are those who are um, involuntary admitted. And, uh, and, 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 and Michael said, you know, he'd like to see this extended to a wider group of people of those people who are voluntarily admitted. And you're saying there is, there is a sort of like limited way in. But, but um, um, you know, so, so do, do you agree with that, 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 that the, you know, the current way the conditional discharge regime works is it provides that, you know, that, that, that a level of assist, assist a supervisory over, oversight assistance. All um, right. All right, Miss um, Trang and, uh, and Rainbow, I guess I will have to just hold, hold, your, hold your thoughts for, there for a moment because we need to take a, a short break for the news. I will continue our discussion afterwards. Many thanks again to Roundtable lawmaker Michael Tian for joining us this morning. Now, uh, if you want uh, to ask our guests questions or share your views on today's topics, you can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3, email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233-88266. And uh, here's a a quick look at the weather, sunny intervals and a few showers, hot during the day with a top temperature of around 32 degrees. And uh, the uh, winds are moderate, south uh, westerlies. And uh, right now it's uh, 31 degrees, relative humidity 75%. It's now 9.30 with a new summary. Here's Barry O'Rourke. An NGO has called for greater resources for small and medium-sized enterprises to train their staff as mental health first aiders after its survey found over half of employees reported poor physical and mental health. The Hong Kong Christian Service says nearly 40% of more than 600 respondents suffered from work stress. Rescue teams are racing against time to find a deep-diving submersible that went missing near the wreck of the Titanic with five people on board. The U.S. Coast Guard said the rescue effort had not yielded any results. And President Biden has met experts in San Francisco to discuss the promise and pitfalls of artificial intelligence. Mr Biden told the gathering there was a need to manage the risk AI poses to national security and the economy. He said we'll see more technological change in the next 10 years than in the previous 50. We'll have more news on the hour from RTHK. Not sure about the health status of your family? Cannot find your baby's vaccination record? eHealth can record blood pressure and blood sugar and manage the health of yourself and your family. You can also view the electronic vaccination record anytime to keep track of your child's health. eHealth establishes personal, lifelong, and privacy-protected electronic health records for you. Easy health management anytime, anywhere, leading you to a healthy future. Download now. Parents have been looking after us for so long, now it's our turn. The HKMC Annuity Plan offers a stable monthly income to parents for life. With this lifetime protection, parents can enjoy a hassle-free retirement and we can have peace of mind knowing that they are taken care of. Call 2512-5000 or visit our website to learn more. The product involves risks. The plan is subject to terms and conditions. Welcome back. This is Back Chat on a Wednesday morning with Rainbow Leung and me, Janice Wong. Still with us on the program is clinical psychologist Dr. Amos Chung and Daisy Chung, the Deputy Director of the Centre for Medical Ethics and Law at the University of Hong Kong. 
And uh, before the news, uh, we, um, Rainbow, you're asking uh, Ms. Uh, Ms. Chung something, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, it seemed to me that um, the current regime which we have, the conditional dis discharge regime, um, it's discharge subject to conditions. And it seems to me that those conditions, at least some of them, um, you know, you know, it, it was a way to access a layer of supervisory support in the community and putting to one side, of course, the adequacy of the community care. Um, I was just wondering, well, if, if to me that seemed like a good thing. So why would one limit that to, you know, th those who are... Um, those who are currently eligible are those who are involuntarily admitted to hospital, yet um, it's, it's, it's those who are voluntarily admitted but who could benefit from that access to the supervisory support, why, why would we not extend it to those, 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 those patients? Right, right. So first of all, just to clarify, um, people, I think there's a bit of a red herring question here, which is what uh, people ask, like, oh, we should introduce, you know, the CTO, like it's an, you know, a totally different beast. Um, so I'm giving a bit of background first before I get to your question. Mm. Um, but um, so a C just to clarify, a CTO and a CD, both are categorized under the larger um, uh, category of mandatory outpatient treatment. So what that means is, or in other words, compulsory community treatment. In some way or another, uh, CDs and CTOs both require people, after they've been reintegrated into the community, to continue being under control uh, of different forms um, uh, because of certain reasons. So um, when we talk about introducing the CTO, it's not introducing it as if it's something that we've never had or we've never seen, something that's going to bring a huge big difference to, to what we have at the moment, because the CD is also a form of mandatory outpatient treatment. And in my view, it's a form that's very restrictive. It covers a huge amount of people that arguably shouldn't be covered. Um, and, and I'll explain why. And, um, and, uh, and, and so therefore, I think as it currently stands, you're already covering the people who are most likely to commit incidents of uh, 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 violence or, or public uh, incidents that would endanger public safety. And I don't think, as I mentioned before, capturing the group of cooperative people under voluntary admission would be helpful to advance this cause. Now, coming back to the question of why we don't extend this kind of supervisory support to people more generally, there are two issues here. One issue is what was the rationale of um, uh, legislating CDs in the first place? So CDs were uh, legislated back in 1988 after um, a, uh, a very tragic um, incident occurred in a kindergarten, um, uh, which which caused you know the, the public to be very outraged and you know and the government reacted again in a very reactive manner and and, and uh, passed this piece of legislation with very very little safeguard, very little regard for human rights, um, and uh, so that they could cover it's exactly like today's what we're discussing the sorts of cases that we think would uh, cause the most uh, uh, public violence, et cetera. So um, th that's the rationale. So when they were passing this legislation, they were not thinking about, oh, how might we best help different people uh, who are recovering from mental illness receive the support that they need, right? So in other countries, um, they might have introduced the CTO thinking about this. So when their criteria would say, for example, people who are at risk of harm to themselves or to others, right? So whether or not you agree that we can compel people on the basis of you know, paternalistic reasons, you know, stopping them from harming themselves is a different question. But in many other countries, it's a very holistic and comprehensive consideration of whether patients of all different kinds um, and different kinds of tendencies, not just violent tendencies to others, but also tendencies to harm themselves should be covered. So this is one reason, which is the rationale at the time did not consider people who were not violent to others. And I think it's the same thing is happening this time, because all we're talking about 
people with violent tendencies. We're not talking about anybody else. The second reason is because we also, um, even though this is, you can regard this as a layer of supervisory support, in, in reality, it also is a form of restriction, and it's a form of a very severe restriction. So um, in, in a study that I did last year, uh, we interviewed, you know, uh, 24 people who were on CD, and they talked about their experiences and how much they felt their lives were being restricted, how they couldn't, you know, go about their lives. They couldn't get proper jobs. They couldn't get relationships. They couldn't get married. They couldn't have proper lives um, on the basis uh, that they had the CD on them. So with this in mind, we also have to think about whether it's warranted for people uh, uh, different sorts of people to be on a CD or a CTO. And in that vein, we would need to think of very clear criteria in order to put these people on CDs or CTOs to suggest that this would actually, number one, be helpful for them. Because as we know, all over the world, there's no evidence that CTOs or CDs are efficacious at all. They're not effective at all. And secondly, whether this is in balance with um, their, their rights and with uh, the potential damage that they could cause to society. Not sure if that answers your question. But. All right. Uh, was that it okay? does, it does. Okay, yes. that's great. And let's Thank go. You. Let's go back to uh, Dr. Chung. Yes. Dr. Chung, I, I just want to go back to a point you uh, you were making uh, before the news. Uh, you were saying that uh, um, that we shouldn't just uh, rely on medication when we uh, deal with uh, uh, patients. Um, what about uh, the role of uh, counselors, of mental health counselors? I mean, what what kind of role do they play in Hong Kong right now? Um, and what kind of role can they play in future to help well, with the situation? This is a very delicate issue because, uh, as far as I know, counsellors is a very broad category in Hong Kong, and there are no uh, defined or a very unified standardised training with counsellors or social workers. Uh, social workers are a little bit better, but both of them, they, in their training, they are not uh, trained as a specialized professionals to handle psychiatric patients. It's like more, some of the counselors in their training, in some of the programs, we know that they, they, the practicums or, or placements are even optional. So that creates an issue of whether uh, counselors uh, are well equipped to handle uh, uh, psychiatric patients. Uh, in my practice, actually, I have seen quite a number of my patients who have, before visiting me, actually visited counsellors or social workers. But at the end of the day, their visits actually worsen the conditions because they have missed some of the important psychiatric issues where they are not fully trained. I guess the problem is uh, we can't just try to rush in and, and push uh, uh, people who are not well trained into these specific roles. Uh, we need planning and we need resources. So as, say, for example, uh, we provide uh, specialized training for social workers so that they can become clinical social workers who can provide some sort of uh, input in this care uh, uh, services. Or actually the government can also further invest resources in the training of clinical psychologists, in which actually it doesn't require really a lot of time to catching up because uh, at the present in Hong Kong, it's, the training of clinical psychologists is a two-year master's program. So uh, if we invest resources in these trainings of professionals, we can catch up and provide quality care instead of just simply pushing people who might not be well trained into this. And then in the end, we create another problem which can, which can be more severe.
All right. You mentioned a clinical social workers. Do you have an idea, any idea how many there are in Hong Kong right now? We don't have the specific category right now, but there are such things uh, uh, abroad in Canada, in the States. Uh, but it's something that is very specialized. All right. What about counselors? Counselors, I mean, right now, the, the counselors that, are, that exist in Hong Kong, do they, do they have any um, psych, uh, psychology background? They, it's not a prerequisite. And uh, counselors, we, in fact, we don't have a very clear definitions in terms of the, the, uh, the training of the counselors can have or cannot have. It's a title that is unregulated. Anyone can claim themselves to be counsellors. And then uh, uh, there are no standardised programmes that stipulate what sorts of knowledge or coverage in terms of training for counsellors. So there are a lot of programmes in terms of counsellors and training, but it varies in quality and also in the scope. And in fact, what I can see is that counsellors who are well-trained and also social workers, they can also, in fact, invest more of their time and effort in the preventive care in terms of the promotions of mental health and also in treating people who are subclinical in terms of their mood or mental health problems, while also identifying potential uh, uh, psychiatric patients and refer them to proper uh, medical professionals, such as psychiatrists or clinical psychologists, for further follow-ups. Right. And uh, I mean, earlier, Mr. Tian, he, he was talking about uh, community treatment orders. I mean, it's not a new thing. It's something that uh, was suggested several years ago um, when, when uh, there was a review of uh, local medical health services. Um, and uh, at the time, the option wasn't considered uh, appropriate. And I, I know, Dr. Chung, you were a member of the advisory group on mental health promotion around the same time. Um, do, you, do you remember remember what the problem was, actually? Well, I guess... Uh uh, a lot of issues would result, revolve around multiple things like uh, whether it's, uh, it violates uh, uh, other respects of human rights, whether we need to have strike a balance between uh, 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 personal voluntary choice and the safety of the community, whether we can or we have the needed resources and professionals to back up all these services. But I guess the problem is some of the times when we identify some of these issues, say for example, that what we need more trained professionals so that uh, the, the response would be, okay, uh, it's not enough, so let's just put it aside. But without actually addressing the issues, by preemptively allocating enough resources to train up the needed professionals. So every now and then we responded in just a very jerk, reflexive manner rather than a well-thought actions. And that, I guess, is always the problem. So when we look at this issue, how do you think, I mean, how, how can we um, uh, balance the rights of uh, patients and the need to uh, monitor mental health patients with uh, violent tendencies? Uh, what, what's the best way? There are a lot of uh, clinical measures, a lot of subtleties that we can involve. Say, for example, I once worked in psychiatric hospitals. Uh, we actually allow uh, the, the physicians, the psychiatrists, to have the free hand to to 
to make their decisions while also alerting them to the idea and be more sensitive to the potential violence uh, tendencies and whether we can provide adequate support and backups before we release them back or we discharge them back into the community. Uh, there are a lot of ish, uh, uh, available actions that we can do at the professional level with uh, adequate resources and also support from the government. I'm getting the sense um, that the CD regime that we have in place um, I mean, isn't perfect, needs to be you know, um, you know, radically reviewed uh, comprehensively. Um, I mean, is that, is that the view that, that, that's shared by this group? Yes, definitely. Exactly. Yeah. All right. And just a, just a final question, Ms. Cheung. I mean, I just asked uh, um, Dr. Cheung about uh, um, how, how we can balance the rights of patients and the need to better monitor medical health patients with violent tendencies. Just, um, just to wrap up this discussion, uh, what, what's your view? No, I think that's a million-dollar question, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what the whole world has been trying to figure out. Um, so since the passing of the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities in 2008, where there was a whole shift in global mentality towards how we see people with disability, including people with mental disability, and how we want to see them on an equal basis and other, uh, with others. And um, in Hong Kong and China, we've all signed on to uh, this convention. But, you know, what does it mean for our mental health legislation? That's the really tricky part. A lot of people around the world have even argued for abolition, which means that we don't have compulsory treatment. We don't have these sorts of controls over people, you know, and does that work? And, you know, if we do have controls, you know, how do we do it in the least restrictive way um, that also, you know, can, can, you know, prevent the harms to those people and to others that we're worried about? So those are, you know, really important questions that, you know, all over the world uh, we've been struggling with except in Hong Kong, we haven't really been struggling with this at all because our, our, our MHO uh, mental health ordinance was last significantly amended in 1997. And so this is, you know, 20-plus years ago, where all over the world there's been all these modern developments since the CRPD, all these discussions, all these thoughts. Um, and, and as uh, Dr. Chen also said, you know, often this is just, uh, you know, responses, knee-jerk response, reactive response, they're not considering things holistically. So, uh, sorry, just to answer your question really briefly, you know, if we were to keep these systems, they would need to have very strict criteria. We would need to target them towards the people that really would benefit from them to ensure the least amount of uh, infringement to human rights and also the most uh, efficacy uh, out of these measures. That's uh, how I would All right. It. All right, Ms. Chung, and we'll have to leave it here for now. Thanks again for joining us this morning. And that's uh, Daisy Chung, the Deputy Director of the Center for Medical Ethics and Law at the University of Hong Kong. Many thanks also to Amos Chung, clinical psychologist. And uh, it's now 9.47. And in a moment, we'll take a look at new treatments developed by the Polytechnic University to treat infections caused by antibiotic-resistant superbugs. 95 years of public service broadcasting. Stay tuned with Hong Kong. I'm Gilly of Consumer Council. Happy birthday, LTHK, for your 95th anniversary. May I wish you always filled with positive energy, continue to discover and report accurate, impartial and objective consumer news for consumers to shop smartly every day. 95 years of public service broadcasting. Stay tuned with Hong Kong. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233 and have your say. 
Now, after several years of research, the Polytechnic University has come up with ways to reduce the mortality of patients infected with the superbug Eclepsiella pneumoniae. And to tell us more about it, we're now joined on the line by Professor Cheng Sheng, the Chair Professor of Microbiology at the University. Good morning, Professor Chen. Hello, good morning. Thanks for joining us on the program. Now, um, Klebsiella pneumoniae is uh, one of the most uh, threatening superbugs that uh, have emerged over the last uh, two decades. Um, Professor Chen, can you first tell us more about it? Uh, how dangerous is it? Okay. Um, actually, uh, Klebsiella pneumonia is uh, one of species of Enterobacteriaceae, so uh, mainly found in the GI tract. In the beginning, it's just like E. coli, you know, um, it's uh, not very harmful, you know, uh, a bacteria. But over many decades, evolution, so this um, bacteria uh, has, you know, uh, evolved into several very dangerous uh, pathogenic uh, pathogens, uh, including uh, drug resistant. So we call it carbapenem resistant Carbacillus pneumonia. And another one is we call it hypervirulence. So that one can cause very high mortality. And in in 2017, so our group uh, discovered first time these two phenotypes. Uh, we call it uh, multiple drug resistance and hypervirulence. They convert together, become a new superbug. We call it um, uh, carbapenem resistant and hypervirulence Klebsiella pneumonia. So uh, these uh, uh, su- uh, these superbugs are very dangerous uh, in the hospital, and, and it has become the most you know prevalent, the most common bacterial pathogen in the hospital setting in many parts of the world, including mainland China. Uh, in Hong Kong, I believe as well, it's, it's very popular in uh, in the hospital. Right, and uh, this superbug, I mean, I mean, it has uh, taken. Oh, I mean, it's overtaken MRSA as a health problem in the UK. Um, what is the? I mean, you said uh, it's very dangerous situation in Hong Kong. I mean, are there many infections caused by the superbug in Hong Kong? Uh, so, uh, uh, in recent years, there are many. There are several superbugs that has been reported. Klebsiella uh, uh, pneumonia uh, in these recent years has become the most important superbug in a clinical setting. The reason for that is because it it spread very quick in a clinical setting, and it also is drug resistance, and some of them are high variants. So all these features together, it will cause very high mortality in the clinical patients. So, for example, uh, if this but uh, get into bloodstream of patients, so the mortality rate can reach to 40 to 50 percent, which is very high uh, for any kind of disease. Right. So it's very dangerous, you know. <laughs> yeah. And your research, um, doctor, is, uh, what, 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 what have you found from your research? So yeah, uh, after we discovered the, the very dangerous uh, new supervisor in 2017, so our team has worked very in- uh, intensively in this area to understand uh, the molecular mechanism of pathogenesis of this bacteria as well as uh, to develop some novel therapies. So uh, after a few years uh, of research work in this area, so we uh, understand how this superbug cause mortality, high mortality in clinical patients. And then based on our understanding, so we find out actually the, the mechanism of high mortality is due to the better survival of this superbug in the host, which normally, which 
uh, lead to the cytokine storm production you know, uh, in the patients and lead to the sepsis shock. So then uh, based on this understanding, so we think that if we suppress the cytokine storm using some immunosuppressants, which may be very helpful for after our research. So we find out actually um, um, if we treat the patient with, uh, we use animal as a model first, yeah. So um, uh, we, we treat the uh, infected animal with aspirin, one of the immunosuppressants, and then we find it actually can save very severe sepsis shock in the mice. And then further, we uh, use these immunosuppressants together with antibiotics, so which show very, very good if, uh, efficiency in eradicating and treating uh, severe infection caused by these superbiotic animal models. Right. You mentioned cytokine storm. Can you, can you just, uh, I mean, in simple terms, is it basically when your immune system produces uh, too many inflammatory signals? Yes. Over yes. overproduction. The the reason that uh, uh, the host can produce a, a lot of these um, uh, cytokines is because the bacteria cannot be cleared by the host. Normally, after infection, so so uh, our host will stimulate immune response and then clear the superbug, and then the immune response will come down and go to the normal level. However, this superbug cannot be cleared by the host, so then it keep stimulating the production of cytokine, and which lead to the cytokine stone and cause damage to different organs and hosts. So, so from my understanding, so basically with immunosuppressants together with um, antibiotics, it can help uh, reduce the mortality of infected patients, but it cannot eradicate the superbug. Is that uh, correct? Uh, no. Uh, so you, we only use immunosuppressants. So it can save the patient, you know, for that moment. But it, it cannot, because immunosuppressant cannot kill uh, 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 the bacteria in the host. So, so that's the reason we use uh, immunosuppressants together with antibiotics. So immunosuppressants is to reduce the cytokine storm, and antibiotics then kill the bug in the host, which can save the life and can treat the uh, infection. Right, so it can help uh, reduce the mort mortality of infected patients. Um, do you have an idea of uh, how much it can uh, reduce the mortality rate by? So, so we we haven't started our clinical trial yet, but based on our uh, study, based, based on our um, uh, uh, research data, it can show that it's very effective even for um, animals that infect with very, very high dose of uh, this silver bar. That means... Um, uh, uh, um, Assimilating to a patient, if the patient undergo very severe infections, it still can be treated successfully using this combination of treatment. Right, you've been testing on mice. I mean, what, what's the data? I mean, do you have any idea, uh, any any data to support this? Uh, scientifically, <laughs> uh, I don't know whether general public understands. So, uh, in another way, uh, uh, so for example, uh, if, uh, in an animal model, you we infect the mice with uh, 10 to power 4 of this superbug. We got to see a, a, a number of, of, of this bacteria. Then it, will, it can kill um, the mice in like 12, 24 hours, oh, wow. uh, completely, 100%. So you, we uh, uh, still infect the mice with, uh, 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 we infect mice with similar dose, we, it can be successfully treated with this combination. So if we re increase the dose to 10 to power 7, 3 lot higher, then right. it still can be successfully 
uh, you know, uh, treated by our combination suggestion. This is a very effective treatment. Right. That does sound very complicated. But basically, you've tested it on mice and uh, it works, basically. Yeah, it within works very well. Hours. Yeah. yeah, within 24 hours. Right, and uh, and uh, when we when we look at uh, um, this uh, study you've done, I mean, what, what's going to happen next? I mean, are you going to ca- carry out uh, your clinical trials, and what's next? Oh yes, we that that's what we are doing because these uh, these two type of drugs, including the other novel uh, antibiotic combination that we have de- uh, 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 discovered, both all these drugs are clinical use drugs. They're FDA approved drug already, so we just use it. We call it drug repurposing. So we just reuse it for other purposes, like treating uh, the infection by this superpower. So that means this drug will, it, it, it can go to the clinical trial right away with some, you know, documentation and, and some procedures. So we are working with hospital to, um, to, to do this paperwork and then to find the right patients and then to uh, to do a clinical trial. This is what we are doing now, yeah. And I noticed you used um, aspirin in this uh, study. I mean, what is, I mean, why aspirin? Uh, um, so uh, even like for cytokine storm, right, different uh, bacteria or viral pathogen can um, induce uh, stimulate cytokine storm, but they are through different pathways. So this cytokine storm can be you know, uh, stimulate using different molecular uh, pathways, but aspirin probably um, uh, can inhibit this specific pathway triggered by uh, infections caused by crevasseal pneumonia. So we actually we try many different type of immunosuppressants, uh, um, the the viral drug. So aspirin shows the most effective, um, um, you know, outcomes. So that's the reason we chose aspirin. Right, and uh, you'll be carrying out a clinical trial. So um, when exactly do you think uh, we'll be able to use it uh, in Hong Kong or in uh, hospitals? Uh, it really depends. We actually uh, we, we try our best to speed up the process, but we, uh, we actually cannot expect a day. So we uh, it, it need you know, a certain amount of patient data and then to show the uh, efficiency, safety. So um, uh, because we are... Uh, uh, we hope some pharmaceutical company can step in and help speed up the process. We have very limited resource on doing this, and we are not, you know, an <laughs> expert on, on on doing clinical trial. So, but right now we actually contact a lot of hospitals in Hong Kong and in China are very interested in this this therapy because currently there is no effective therapy to treat this superbug super infection. All right. In a yeah. All right. Uh, good luck. Uh, good luck with your research. Uh, Professor Chen, thanks again for joining us uh, this morning. That's uh, Professor Chen Sheng, the Chair Professor of Microbiology at uh, the Polytechnic University. Many thanks also to you who commented or emailed us today and to our guest presenter, Rainbow Lung and producer, Raphael. And uh, Bag Chad will return on Friday with me and Andrew Work.